Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Rookie Chef podcast with me, Nadia Zirfat, where I'll be interviewing some brilliant chefs about their exceptional recipes. We did this recording at home, so sometimes the audio quality might not be what we would expect in the studio. This is our final episode of the Rookie Chef podcast and today I'm joined by chef, author and regular contributor to our sister magazine Olive, Monica Goartan and we're going to be discussing Kima Pau. Hi Monica, how are you? Hi Nadia, very well, how are you? I'm good, thank you. So for anyone that doesn't know, would you mind giving a rundown of what Kima Pau is? Okay, Kima Pau is um, like your western sloppy joke. Uh, but I think a slightly more spicier and a more delicious version, if I may say so myself. I'm quite biased to it. Uh, Kima essentially is minced lamb, so it's spiced minced lamb and it's got uh, ground spices. It's got a slight thickening agent. Some some places will add a thickening agent of some sort. Um, it's got minced meat. And I think to make a good classic Kima pao, you want uh, minced lamb that's got a good amount of fat in it. So low fat mince, you know, just doesn't really cut it for me. And um, so, what does that like add to the to the overall flavor? If I if mean, the... every everything it adds <laughs> unctuousness. It adds yeah. that re- you know what in the West they call as umami. Mm. Yeah, even if you add like my mother used to add when she used to simmer the kima, the minced lamb, she would actually add bone marrow as well. Okay, so that's way more flavor and yeah, it would have a, you know, decent amount of fat, but bone marrow, of course, thickens it, makes it that much more delicious. I mean, I can't even explain what it does, but there's something to it which actually makes it that much more special. There's a few, I suppose, secrets in the way some people actually cook their kheema pao and I'll talk you through that a little later. But 
essentially like sloppy joe it's a little sloppy it's a little thick it's it's got a light sort of um rich runny sort of gravy so it shouldn't be too liquidy it should still have enough that you know of a gravy where you can kind of use the pao which is the bread um yeah. and most places in bombay would call it ladi pao where you can actually kind of take that bread and kind of scoop up the keema and just eat it and generally the pao is used for a lot of things in bombay and even in goa i mean of course the you know the whole idea of pao pao bread comes from the portuguese when they you know settled in goa and you know people who actually moved um, to north or south bombay kind of inhabited that whole you know kind of emphasis of baking your own pao and making fresh pao so we would have pao with masala chai we would have pao with chaat any kind of chaat so you know you can have misal pao which is a misal is like a, a vegetarian dish that maharashtrians tend to make and you scoop that's a veggie version i suppose you scoop that with some pao as well vada pao which is quite popular which is um potato deep fried with um, gram flour and then stuffed in bread with garlic chili chutney and then you have got keema pao which is of course one of the most popular things so pao is such an integral part of yeah. i suppose the west of india that i don't think any meal or any uh street food or any rustic um sort of dish is actually complete without it um and the two have to go together um when i make keema at home we're having it with chapatis or you know or having maybe keema pulao but nothing can compare to the marriage of keema with pao and i think the thing about pao is it has to be slightly buttery so when you finish you know kind of my mother used to do that. so she, when she like they do they probably butter it separately in restaurants and stuff to make it slightly more richer but when she actually scoop out the keema and put it in a dish she'd use the same pan and actually fry the pao in the fat or in the oil and uh, in the butter and honestly it is just it's so break a piece of the uh, bread scoop up your keema um a bite of that and then along with on the side you can have pickled onions or you can add some fresh lime to your keema so it guts through the whole kind of you know um delicious unctuous fatty uh, flavors and it's just you've gone to heaven <laughs> I can see by your face when you talk about it you're almost transported and you're you're imagining the flavors as as you eat it. And, I think it's um, I think it's it's inherently because I grew up eating it. You know, I I grew up eating it at no frills restaurants. Um from a very young age Nadia I was brought up to believe that actually, you know, there's there's no faff in in kind of going and actually having real hearty rustic food. and there are so many places you know where you go near crawford market or you know the old old age old restaurants and i'm not talking about um cafes per se you know parsi cafes is just one aspect i suppose of uh, a city like bombay but i'm talking about say a radio restaurant or any kind of old age restaurants where they actually serve you the typical fare of not just a mince lamb and pao but they'll also serve you you know gurda and kaleji which is awful uh, you know like spicy chicken liver and you know the real classics of 
um, be it Mughlai cooking or be it, you know, kind of um, whether you're eating offal or you're eating mutton or you're eating chicken, you've got to go to these places to, I suppose, in a way, experience that. And I think the only way you can actually understand the cuisine of, of certain aspects of restaurants in, 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 in a city like that, especially when there are holes in the walls, you most yeah. people who actually visit the, the city probably won't have even heard of it. Um, yeah. But I think my parents were such avid, you know, eaters um, that, you know, it, it never, we never shied away from eating rustic, hearty, wholesome food. So even as kids, I was taken um, shopping uh, to fish markets and, uh, you know, to the butchers when I was like, you know, five and six years old. Um, and mind you, these are not, uh, you know, clean butchers and they are most definitely not the most uh, artistic places. Uh, the, you you watch everything get slaughtered and, uh, you know, I mean, of course, with respect, but you you, you learn very quickly that um, that is, you know, how it's done. And and I, I, honest to God, Nadia, I reveled in it, you know. So when I started eating it at restaurants with them, I think even when we were home, I think my mother always endeavored to actually give us some really good food when I was growing up. So I think even though money was tight and wasn't always a case of actually having, you know, the, the best kind of meals, um, simple meals, but uh, really hearty meals. And, you know, I always say this, there was never any kind of supermarkets when I was growing up in India. So it was all based on uh, budgets, what we could afford and, um, you know, what was available. So when people talk about seasonality, um, it's, I suppose, it's something we were doing from a very young age because not out of choice, but out of circumstance, really. And um, yeah. yeah, and I think this was one of the dishes she would always, always make at home. And it was such, but the, the only prerequisite is, I have to be honest, she would not always make her own power. She would buy the power from, say, Parsi bakeries or from, you know, Goan bakeries where you know it's freshly made in the morning. And I remember yeah. times we would go and stand in the queue at like 9.30 in the morning. And at 10 o'clock, you know, 10.30, depending on how long the queue was, we would get served. I kid you not, Nadia, by midday, they would sell out of like thousands of pao. Wow. And I remember coming back home when I used to walk with her, the pao was covered just in newspaper and was still warm in my hands. And we'd come back home and just to kind of experience that, you know, flavor of really freshly made baked pao, I would open it. She would slather it with something we use in India called amul butter, which I don't think you can get anything better than that. Yeah. And it would melt in the pao. And then we would have cups of masala chai, dip the pao in there and then just eat it. And it was... That sounds incredible. It was everything. It was everything. Yeah. I mean, I wish there were words to describe it. But um, I think when you grow up with memories like that, um, you know, that's, I think, half the reason I, I do what I do because I just want to replicate you know, uh, experiences of my childhood. And I want my own family and my own, you know, uh, people around me, my loved ones to be able to experience a little bit of that, a slice of it. So I think for me, that was just the best. And so then that that would give her an excuse to make kima and, you know, obviously serve it for the family. So the recipe that, you know, I'm sharing is um, essentially a family recipe. Yeah. Um, but there are nuances to it. And of course, not everyone make it the same way, but I can, of course, talk you through how 
other people yeah. make it as well. Yeah. So um, when you sort of talk about how much this recipe means to you, because it's mm. sort of, it's not just food, it's a link to your childhood, I guess. And when you eat that, it transports you back to that time where you have all these fond memories. What goes into sort of, have you have you adjusted the recipe at all from, from your mum or have you kept it relatively, relatively the same? I think, um, okay, so this recipe actually does not belong to me. It belongs to one of my mum's friends. Um, you'll find that every community will have a certain way of actually making it. The premise of the recipe is exactly how my mother would make it. I think the only difference is um, in my recipe, I've used coconut milk, which is what my mom's friend would use. And she's from the Parsi community. Community They just prefer to actually add coconut milk. I think the combination of coconut milk, which is slightly creamy, um, and the recipe also includes uh, vinegar, which gives a lovely sharp flavor, you know, so it's not... It's not really that rich. And and she also um, used to add uh, dark brown sugar. So lovely treacleness. So the balance of the creamy coconut milk, the vinegar and the sugar, I think for me actually kind of, you know, brings it all together. Okay. Yeah. I think um, that for me is key. I think the I, I haven't changed anything apart from that. I think the only difference is that when my mother would make the very same recipe, instead of using coconut milk, she would use gram flour. Okay, so okay. you want that little bit. What you want nowadays, when you actually pick up your pao, you want to be able to kind of scoop up the keema with that mm. bread, okay? And that sloppy kind of keema, you know, lamb curry, that richness comes yeah. with it thickening the gravy, and if you make, I don't know, kima peas or, you know, just basic kima curry that you would normally make a minced lamb curry with green peas, I suppose the consistency would be slightly different to if you make kima pao. So her trick was um, to add um, gram flour. So you just kind of mix it like you would do with corn flour, I suppose. Mm. So you would just mix it with a little bit of water and then just add that to, at the end to, uh, while it's actually simmering. And then it would thicken it quite nicely. Um, yeah. For me, the most um, sort of uh, crucial bit of this recipe personally is the spice powder. Now, I don't think I can actually say, oh, use garam masala instead of using the spice powder because my spice powder that I've actually mentioned in the recipe uses uh, mace, which gives a wonderful flavor, and star anise. Those are my two star ingredients, which I think work really, really well. Um, but I think the spice powder is really key. The other thing I know um, a lot of uh, my Bori and Muslim friends who used to actually cook kima pao as well. Um, I know this sounds bizarre, but if you look, if you have any, like they used to have a small, one of my, uh, our neighbors was Bori. She used to actually make kima pao, but Bora communities, you know, are, are renowned for making the best meat dishes, to be honest, in, in Mumbai. So what she would do is instead of using coconut milk or gram flour, she would actually add um, a little small amount while the keema was actually going in uh, a small amount of chicken liver. Okay. Now the chicken so liver. So that's the thickening agent that's almost. That's the thickening okay. agent almost. But it's also got so much flavor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, she would use the chicken liver and of course the chicken liver would cook, but it would kind of, you know, mush up slightly in the gravy. So that would thicken it, but it would also give it that much more flavor. Yeah. 
But then uh, when my mother would make it, the other thing she would add is bone marrow. So we'd get, you know, if you go to your butchers even now and you can get hold of bone marrow easily, if you just tell them, mm. listen, if you're getting your, you know, minced lamb from your butchers, just say, can I get a small, maybe quarter kilo, 250 grams of bones? And they give it to you for free because it, it really is nothing to it. And I yeah. do that normally if I'm making a lamb curry, which I did on the weekend, um, I'll get extra bone. Uh, which is what we call nalli. So I just get the extra nalli with the marrow. And when the lamb curry or a keema curry is actually simmering, that marrow is actually kind of releasing itself in the gravy. So what that's doing is actually adding more flavor, more fat and all the good stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are um, so many different flavors there that you're There are you're so many different about flavors. Yeah, so I think it's that it's that marriage. So I think you can choose what you want to add. I mean, you could do the same recipe as I have done using coconut milk, but you can just add maybe some bone marrow at the end and that would give it, you know, that lovely, lovely unctuous flavor. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, I mean, I, I haven't veered away from the recipe. The only thing I have tried to do is keep it more contemporary. So as much as um, the recipe, my mother would say, oh, add a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, I have stuck to proper precise measurements. Mm, okay. And I have test, tested this over and over again. So I think for me, it's it's about actually ensuring that I tested it to understand that it was a recipe that would work for everybody, not just, you know, yeah. for us. Um, yeah. Um, when you're recreating your recipe, mm. do you find yourself sort of um, adapting it to make it more accessible to a, a Western audience and changing, say, the original that your mum would cook or your friends would cook? Um. I think my main aim is to not change it as much. I have mm. to be totally honest with you. I think one of the reasons I prefer that is because, look, my memories are always, how did it taste when I first ate it? Yeah. Okay, and when I was in India, how did it taste when I actually ate it at home or at a restaurant? What was it like? And when I'm testing a recipe, I'm almost, even with this, with this Kimapa recipe, I'm almost like, you know, it's. A, I'm not going to lie, this recipe is pretty lengthy. You know, it's not an easy recipe. It's, you probably get quicker Kima recipes if you want to Google them. But I think there's some some sort of something nice about spending the weekend just making this long drawn curry. Yeah. Maybe yeah, just definitely. I feel that way. I don't know. Um, no, and I think when when you put that much time and effort into something, mm -hmm. the end result just tastes so much better. Yeah, absolutely. Not just because of flavor, but because you've put that almost labor of love into it. Yeah, but it is a labor of love. And I think yeah. um, for me, taste is always imperative over anything else. Um, mm. I've tried, I mean, of course, there's there's a variety of recipes that I do. So I try and ensure there's a lot of easy and accessible recipes. But at the same time, yeah. if something takes, you know, has 20 ingredients, then it has 20 ingredients. I'm not going to cut yeah. corners. Um, no, definitely. For instance, my, my mother's, my grandmother's crab curry has about 27 spices. Um, I haven't written it out yet, but I, I do know that it's not the kind of recipe that I can minimize the amount of spices that I use or because everything lends something to the final ultimate dish. Um, and the same for this. With this, you want to make sure you, you know, all the spice powders um, are ground. So, so all the all the spices, they're whole spices. There's star anise, there's mace, uh, there's cloves, all the warming spices. So you grind them down. So when you're actually grinding it, you're kind of releasing those essential oils from the spices. And you kind of, you know, you're kind of making an, a nice fine powder and you're adding that right at the end as well. Do you use a pestle and mortar to grind them or...? No, I use a, a spice grinder. Um, okay. 
the thing is, Nadia, with with the powder, you want a really um, sort of fine powder. Okay. You want a really coarse powder. And I mean, you'll find if you actually bash it in a pestle and mortar, you probably won't get that, you know, kind of powdery sort of consistency. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I have invested uh, a lot of time in uh, in spice grinders and burnt quite a few as well along yeah. the way. So <laughs> uh, I think um, it's just nice to actually be able to grind it. And then you, you can smell the aroma once it's actually ground and then add that right at the end because, you know, you just need a tiny bit which kind of lends itself. I think yeah. the one thing I find interesting is mace and star anise. I don't think people use it enough. And I think it lends so much to... Um, Everything from your lamb curries to your biryanis to, you know, any kind of gravy dishes, it just lends so much, which I think is completely underrated. But the other thing I actually use in this Kima Bao recipe, Nadia, is curry leaves. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Um, and I add them right at the beginning when I'm actually kind of frying the onions. Uh, but again, if people, you know, you, your listeners are actually listen to this and they don't have curry leaves and they can get hold of dried ones, add, crush the dried ones because they don't have that much flavor. So crush the dried ones and then add that right at the end along with the spice powder. Okay. But if you're using fresh ones and you want to add that at the beginning, because that's where Rakan releases essential oils in, in the oil itself and, you know, more flavor in the pan as well. Okay. Um, I think purists might say, well, she's only cooking her onions for seven minutes or eight minutes. <laughs> uh, this is not the kind of recipe where you need a long, uh, lengthy cooking time for the onions. What you want is you want to just soften them. You don't want yeah. to color them that much. Um, and then once you've added your tomatoes and everything else, and then the rest of the ingredients. And I think, you know, things like green chilies make a massive difference. Um, I mean, I can't remember. I must have used 
um, two or three green chilies, whereas my mother would use six or seven. (laughs) (laughs) It's all depending on your preference, I guess, isn't it? It is, but I think like... um, with Indian cooking, a lot of people, I mean, the, I suppose everything varies. The quality of lime in India is different to the quality of limes here. The quality of chilies in India is different to chilies here. Here you get bird's eye chilies that are extremely fiery. There mm. the bird's eye chilies are not so sort of, you know, kind of potent. So she would slit them, not completely, just halfway. And then she would add six or seven right at the end of cooking while it's simmering and stir it through. So in the heat itself, Nadia, it would actually warm the chilies and soften the whole sort of membrane of the chilies and release a little bit of heat. But I think there's some, I I don't know, maybe at the age of 19 and 20, I always had this fascination of actually eating my pao and the kima with a little bit of a bite of a chili. Um, There's something really nice about it. And of course, then you have the creamy coconut milk, which I suppose... Um, calms it all down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, add as much or as little chili as you want. And um, you talk about <clears throat> you talk about how integral powers to the to the dish overall. Yeah. It's a very specific type of bread, isn't it? And would you say that's important to make yourself? If you're say, if a listener wants to make it at home, I mean, um, to make yourself, yes, you can. Um, I think the kind of power we used to get when I was growing up was very different. It was soft. Um, it was almost like these white rolls, but they were not really that crusty on top. They were just kind of, they had this light brown color on top. And, you know, like I was saying earlier, they've obviously come from uh, the heritage of, you know, Portuguese and from Goa, they've traveled upwards towards Uh, Mumbai uh, or Bombay and I think um, just the idea of actually kind of knowing that any kind of pao I have made has never been um, the same as the pao I actually had um, you know when I was growing up you have Irani cafes in India like Yazdani you know um, and they literally would make about 1,500 bread rolls every day and you know you know that it's such good bread roll. I mean, Yazdani, Kayani, these are all the really tried and tested bakeries that were actually there. Um, there was another one uh, in Bandra called the A1 Bakery. So I think, yes, you can make your own, but I think I, I'm not um, a stickler to rules. So make your kima, spend the time there. Uh, buy the pao if you if you want to and yeah I think just savor the flavors but I, what I would say is uh, try not veer, not to veer from eating it with naan or with chapati eat it with pao mm. and also um, you know I mean I ha- what I tend to do is I half the pao and I slather each of the sides uh, with butter obviously and then um, I stick it on a baking uh, tray and then bung that in a warm grill. Okay. <clears throat> but not a very uh, <clears throat> hot grill, just a medium grill. I mean, you can do that in the frying pan if you want, but I prefer it on the grill because then, you know, it colors evenly. So it's um, not necessarily to, to toast it, but it's more to warm it and give it a light color to it. You're right. It's, so it's, the, the, the key is to get it toasted on the top yeah. But the inside, Nadia, is still soft. Soft. Yeah. yeah. So when you break it, you've got that crusty bit on the top. 
Mm. Okay, that's where you can scoop it up and the crusty bit holds its own. So it's not going to go sloppy, you know, or kind of soft as soon as you dunk it in your kima. Mm. Okay, so you want a nice little bit of toasted and then the middle part of the bread is still quite soft to eat. A uh, bit of onion, a bit of lime, maybe some kachumbar if you want. Uh, yum. <laughs> I think what's really interesting when you when you speak about this recipe, with mm. a lot of things, <clears throat> sometimes it's just seen as an accompaniment, but this mm. is a necessity. It's as important as the, the kima. Mm. I think, um, you know, I, I was telling you about the premise of pao in India and also how many different dishes you can actually eat Mm. with pao okay and everything has pao right at the end misal pao vada pao yeah pao so i can't say misal i can't say kima and i can't <clears throat> say vada without saying pao yeah so i think it's not an accompaniment <laughs> i yeah. think it's one of the most integral parts of actually making uh an indian sloppy joe like this and i think you know um like I said, you can you can get crusty bread rolls, but I just think the consistency won't be the same because when you actually butter the bread and then you grill it or you pan fry it, um, you get this really lovely light brown color on, on the pao, on the bread roll. But then the inside is nice and soft and you kind of butter it on both sides. So you actually get, you know, that that evenness, which I think works really, really well. So how would you say the, the texture and the flavor differs from a, a normal bread roll that you'd buy, say, in a supermarket? I mean, you could, I've done that previously as well. So I have actually bought a normal bread, bread roll. But these, texture-wise, they're pretty similar. Okay, I think um, they've got a lovely kind of um, light brown finish on the top. Um, but also, they're almost like milk rolls. No, and not as sweet as, say, a brioche. Hmm. But that lovely kind of rich brioche kind of flavor is, is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. So if you actually are, you know, used to... I'm not much of a baker, Nadia. So, but I think if somebody no, is actually... I. Yeah. Uh, something I have to learn as a skill. But I think if somebody actually does make their own brioche and kind of ha can, in a way, minimize the amount of sweetness they actually add to it, it's a proper lovely milk roll, which is just so good and you know even though like for instance when we'd have pao with masala chai you know my mother would actually slice it butter it and then I'd kind of dunk that in my masala chai so that wasn't toasted or anything that was just soft so that soft bread kind of you know kind of just buttered with amul butter and kind of dunked in was just really nice it it, mm. it had a lovely kind of I mean how do I explain it it was slightly sweet but not really it was almost like sweet milk bread um, and, you know, the other thing is um, a lot of places, even, I mean, the Portuguese, they had the sweet milk bread, which they used to call um, pao de lo. Okay, so pao de lo was actually developed by the Portuguese, taken to Goa. And I think a version of that actually came about in a state like Maharashtra and in Mumbai, in a city like that. So um, it's different to the bread, regular bread rule you buy. But let's be honest, uh, we can't um kind of be so stringent when we when we can't yeah. actually get most things but i think regular bread rolls that you get soft bread rolls is what you're looking for is you know you want to actually find those so you've got the kima you've got, you've the, got bread, the kima you've got the lime 
And the lime. Would you would you have anything else with it? I think you mentioned onions. I would. I would like. Well, I like onions, like a pickled onion salad, because I think, you know, I think there's something very nice about having something crunchy. Yeah. Because you've got liver of kima. Okay, you take a, you know, you've got that little toasted bit of the bread roll. Okay, at the pow. You take a spoonful of kima. You stick it on the pow on crusty pow that you've actually buttered. Then you put a little bit of crunchy pickled onion on there. So it's slightly lemony. You add a little bit of lime to it and then you bite into it. Now, I like pickled onions. That's just a personal thing. And when I make my pickled onion a really quick one, I normally use red onions. So before I start the keema, I'll do the onions. So in a bowl, just sliced, not chopped, nothing. Just sliced into little, little round, you know, thin, wafer-thin pieces. And then on that salt them and then add some lime juice and just leave that. And what that does is the red color of the red onions tends to bleed out. And also it doesn't make it as um, sharp. It doesn't make it as kind of thick and quite a crunchy. It softens mm. it quite nicely. So that's what I tend to do. And then at the end, when I'm just about to serve it, I'll mix in a pinch of chili powder on the onions and I'll add a little bit of fresh coriander on the onions as well. Um, if you don't want to do pickled onions, then I think a nice um, cucumber salad would be lovely. So the same premise of actually adding uh, lime juice and salt to your cucumber, which is peeled and, you know, sort of finely cut into rounds. Um, and along with that, maybe you can add a little bit of chopped tomato as well and some fresh coriander. So you want something that's quite crunchy and sharp and lemony um, to cut through all the flavors. Because don't forget when you're adding bone marrow, you're adding a lot of fat in the lamb. It's very rich. It's very rich. So you want something that's going to offset that really, because mm. you've got the crunch from the pow, you've got the lovely flavor from the kima. Um, and then what else can you add to it? And the only thing I'll say is finish it, off, finish it off with a really nice glass of masala chai. That sounds perfect. <laughs> You're making me so hungry, honestly. <laughs> My mouth is watering as you describe all these flavors. Um, what would you say are the most common mistakes people make if they are making it at home? I think um, looking at a recipe like the one I've given you, Nadia, I think the one thing people will probably turn around saying, well... The spice powder, I could use um, garam masala instead. Um, I think the thing about garam masala is with everyone having their own unique blend and way of cooking it, you want these particular flavors. You want a hint of cardamom. You want the hint of maize. You want a little bit of star anise that comes through, that, you know, anisey flavor. And you want the cloves and the black pepper for the warmth. Um, which I think is really crucial. But the other thing is also fresh ingredients that are actually added are extremely, extremely important in this dish. So curry leaves, ginger, garlic, really important. Onions, of course. Do not use tin tomatoes. Please use fresh tomatoes. They just have a very different flavor. And tin tomatoes, I find, also have a, a little bit of a sauce in it, which will just make it more red. And that's not what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the ground spices, I say there's only a few, which there are. I mean, the main recipe, you'll only have coriander powder, um, you know, chili powder and turmeric. And you've got fresh coriander leaves, which you actually add while you're cooking the dish. But I think the crucial winners of this dish, which I think people shouldn't skimp on, is um, the coconut milk, which adds the creaminess. Um, 
the vinegar, which adds that little bit of tang to the dish. But also, I think people will probably think, well, why is she using dark brown sugar? Why can't she use regular sugar? Uh, in the original recipe, my mother would use jaggery, which is unrefined sugar. Um, and it has a lovely treacle-like consistency and gives a lovely color as well, depending on the grade of your jaggery, because jaggery comes in different grades. So, you know, you can get a lighter version, you can get a darker version. Um, but because I think, you know, not everyone can avail of jaggery, um, I've swapped it for dark brown sugar. So you still get that dark molassesy color mm-hmm. and you still get, get that strong flavor as well, which you're looking for in the sugar. And it's not a large quantity. It's about one, and I normally add about one heap teaspoon um, of the dark brown sugar, but it lends something really, really lovely to it. So I think basic rookie mistakes, I suppose, would really be using caster sugar instead of dark brown sugar or using okay. tinned tomatoes or using garam masala. Um, I don't say it about a lot of recipes because in a lot of recipes, I'm like, yeah, fine, do whatever you want. It's okay. It'll still turn out great, which I do hmm. believe in a lot of recipes, it would turn out amazing regardless of what your swaps are for. Okay. It's not the end of the world. And that's the one thing I always say. The one thing, my rule of thumb usually is now there. If you can't find something, leave it out. It's not going to be the end of the world. Your dish will still taste right. But I think when you're talking about some really hearty, delicious dishes, and I think a little bit of effort, uh, especially when you're cooking this on a weekend, um, wouldn't go amiss. I feel like with the recipe, it's all about balance. So leaving out one ingredient would sort of throw off the balance of the flavor and you wouldn't have that same experience with it. I think some things, yes. So um, we use about two tablespoons of vinegar in the kima pao. Okay, so um, ideally, if you don't want to use vinegar at all because you think it'll probably be too sharp or tart, um, I've added lemon juice at the end. Uh, mm. Then just up the up the quantity of lemon juice that you're actually adding to the dish. Um, but I I can't think of anything else that's actually in the dish that you can leave out. The only thing I'll say is um, <clears throat> in the green chilies. I use bird's eye green chilies, so I don't use the big fat ones. They're really tiny, and I chop the chilies. Okay, because at the end of the day, you want that little bit of heat coming through. Um, But if you don't uh, want to chop it and you prefer to just have a milder flavor, then the best thing to do is just slit the green chili. But when you cut it now, what you want to make sure is you don't slit it all the way through. Just slit it halfway through. So what what difference does that make to the Okay, so, um, so sometimes I do that. So if I don't want a really kind of spicy dish... I'll take the um, knife and I'll actually just poke the chili and make a little gash in it, okay? And then add that to my hot oil or to my pan. Now, what that does is it's actually not releasing the membranes and it's not releasing the seeds. Okay. Okay, whereas if I'm chopping it finely, it's releasing all the seeds, it's releasing all the membranes, so the heat is that much more. And don't forget, I I also cook for a family, so I have, you know, um, my son who eats the very same thing as we do. So at the end of the cooking process, if you have somebody who is not eating a very spicy meal, keep the whole chilies as they are, serve the meal out. And then the chili would have softened by, at this point after like cooking for about, you know, half an hour, 40 minutes, an hour. So with the back of your spoon, just mash the chili slightly. And that's where all the seeds and all the membrane and everything will come out. Mix the curry really well. And then what you get is a lovely sort of warmth and heat in the dish. Um The other thing I've used in this recipe, which I use in a lot of my recipes, I don't think there's any recipe I don't don't use it. It's called Kashmiri chili powder. 
Okay. And um, it's it's a really nice, uh, It's a, there's a, a local name for it, which is Degi Mirch. And they are dried chilies, they are red dried chilies, and they are kind of, you know, um, dried in the sun in India, and then they're ground to a really vibrant um, sort of powder. Now, the key to Kashmiri chili powder is that it essentially is very high on color and very low on heat. So what you want to make sure is that uh, you add just a little. We're using about one teaspoon. You can go as, you know, one and a half teaspoons as well. Um, you can actually get away and take liberties with Kashmiri chili powder because it's really low on heat and very high on color. So you get a vibrant color, but not that mm. much heat. But for any of your listeners, if they can't get hold of Kashmiri chili powder, what they want to do is they want to swap it for some cayenne pepper and some paprika. So the cayenne pepper will give the heat. So maybe add about a half teaspoon, quarter teaspoon of cayenne pepper and add um, one teaspoon of uh, mild paprika, which will give the color. Okay, so you want that level of color, but then the uh, cayenne pepper, you can just adapt it, whether you like it too spicy or not so spicy, you can just adapt it the way you want to. But I think it's a, it's one spice Kashmiri chili powder, which I always tell people you should invest in. Because it's, it's you know, I, I always get this question from a lot of readers and people who actually follow my recipe. They're like, yours looks a lot more vibrant than ours. And I'm like, because I've used a certain chili powder. So if you buy that, maybe, you know, that might actually help sort of enhance the color of the dish. And I think sometimes what tends to happen is we eat with our eyes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, um, you know, I mean, don't don't feel like it's got to look exactly the way mine does. Um, improvise a little bit, make the recipe your own. Um, as long as not to adhere too far away from what you've actually originally seen. Um, and as long as it's delicious, that's the main thing. So hearing you talk about all of this is, mm. is wonderful. I feel like I'm being transported <laughs> to, to the places that you're talking about and the different foods that you've you've eaten over your life Mm. have you always had a passion for cooking um cooking maybe not so much eating yes (laughs) um look I grew up in a household where um food was such an integral part of what we did and how we sort of you know sort of lived our lives really I think my grandmother was a very avid cook and she used to host some of the most ostentatious dinner parties in, in in Bombay uh, we literally, I remember in the 1960s and 50s, uh, they, you know, I used to hear of a lot of these conversations that my family were having. So there were a lot of film stars, a lot of people in 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 Bombay who'd actually never say no to my grandmother's dinner invitations. <laughs> wow. um, and she was very renowned to actually making some very classic dishes, which have kind of stayed in my family and our signatures, I suppose, of our home and have been for years on end. And, you know, even my cousins in Bombay now cook a lot of the recipes and and now so do I. And I think, I think on a contrast, on the other hand, um, <clears throat> my mum and, and my own immediate family, we were not as obviously as well off as my grandmother. Um, so what I learned is that whether you're being far too ostentatious or whether you're actually being far too frugal, in either situations, you can actually have a really good meal. Mm-hmm. And I think I learned that from a really young age, growing up, going to markets, uh, sourcing ingredients, watching my mother cook, uh, eating, you know, we used to have a plate of dal and rice uh, topped with a little bit of homemade ghee, uh, papad and pickle. And even that was superlatively delicious as, say, having, you know, a crab curry or kheema pao or prawn curry. I think also, you know, people tend to forget that Bombay is on the west coast of India. So we are very, very, very fortunate to actually have some of the best produce 
when I was growing up. So fish was, seafood is such a big part of the coastal region of India in, in the West Western area. So we ate a lot of that as well. So for me, it was inherently, you know, what I think, um, I suppose when I was younger, a lot of my friends turned their nose up at the food I ate uh, has become extremely fashionable now to actually eat. So yeah, yeah and I think, you know, from then on, I turned 16, 17, loved the food. You know, in my early 20s, I came uh, to the UK, missed and craved a home cooking massively. Um, and then I just started cooking and she used to email me recipes. And um, it was just really difficult at that point because you're a new cook. You don't know how to actually make certain things. And all your mother would tell you, add a pinch of this, add a little bit of that. Uh, it would be a damn disaster. <laughs> mm. uh, but I think I learned through my mistakes. Um, and, you know, I mean, she she would help along the way as much as she could. But she had certain, you know, a certain kitty of recipes that, you know, I kind of tried and tested. And then I experimented and got better. I'm not a trained chef. Um, I just love the idea of actually cooking certain dishes. And I think inherently when you watch, listen to stories and you see people, women in your family, especially, you know, entertaining and cooking and being so gung-ho about actually feeding people, I think mm. it just inherently comes into your, you know, DNA. Um, and for me, that is just what happened essentially. So, uh, yeah, uh, I love to cook. I love to entertain. I love to eat. Um, I love to feed. <laughs> I think when you grow up around people who have that passion for food, it's very hard not to inherit it yourself. Yeah. It, it almost like it's passed down through your blood almost. Yeah. Like if your parents love cooking, then they they inevitably pass it on to you. Look, I think, and also, I think that's why. You know, at this point, I'm a mother as well. So I think mm. um, having a family means that I'm in, in a position where I want to be able to, you know, they don't get a chance as opposed, you know, the newer generation doesn't get a chance to actually visit or go to markets and see places and experience the things that I've experienced. Hmm. So from my perspective, if I'm even able to give them, you know, a small percentage of that through the flavors I bring on my dinner table, then I think I've won that, um, you know, sort of won their palate and won the idea of actually getting their heart and soul into Indian cooking because we are so, you know, open and, you know, diverse to the amount of different kind of cuisines we are trying nowadays. All of us are. Um, that, you know, even as a family we are. But I think I want them to be able to taste everything that I cook, um, you know, yeah. for the family as well. So, yeah. So you spoke about how when you first came to England, mm. you weren't a cook yourself and you had to sort of learn along the way. Yeah. What advice would you give to people in a similar situation where they're just starting out on their cooking journey and they're not really sure how to sort of tackle the recipes and learning different different tactics how how did you learn practice yeah <laughs> okay. uh, practice for sure but I think also the other thing don't be disheartened if it doesn't turn out right you know because I always say to people even like in seasoned cooks make the recipe your own look at the end of the day my food will never be as much as I started out because I missed my mother's cooking my food will never be the same as my mother's Okay, that's just something I figured out very early on when I started cooking professionally. That the flavors I ate growing up are not the same flavors that I actually have now as a cook myself. I've just learned to develop my own style of cooking. And, you know, be proud of the fact that you're making the effort, uh, you know, on that gas hob, you know, putting the time and effort into cooking some really lovely meals. Be proud of that. Honor that. Um, that's half your kind of battle one, you know, with learning to cook. But also, I think from a very technical point of view, I think read the whole recipe. 
I think some people also obviously read the recipe and they go, okay, I'll start with this. And then they go, oh, but I need that and I need that. Mm. With Indian cooking in particular, the one thing I will say is get your prep done and also make sure your spices are ready. Because sometimes what tends to happen is we actually have the oil hot, you know, in a pan. We add our onions um, and then we read through the recipe and we realize we need, you know, chili powder, turmeric powder. Then you go to the cupboards and you're trying to fish for all those things while your onions are actually burning or your tomatoes mm. are burning or the base sauce is actually burning. So keep everything ready. Keep everything ready in front of you so that you don't feel like you're running across the kitchen, you know, feeling like you're lost. Um, you know, whether it's a simple recipe or a really lengthy recipe, keep all your spices ready so you know how much you have. And also the other key in thing I would say about Indian cooking is, um, you know, your spices are like a seasoning. So if you want warmth, you add spices. So add as, as much or as little as you would add, say, salt or pepper. Okay, so don't get too heavy handed with it. Uh, once you learn the, the techniques and the aspects of cooking, then yeah, by all means, kind of start experimenting a little bit more. But, you know, a pinch of this, a handful of that is what you really need. Um, if you put far too much chili, that may be too spicy. If you put far too much coriander powder, that might, might actually be overwhelmingly lemony or warm, which is not what you need in a recipe, essentially. And I think one one thing I've learned recently, and it sounds so obvious, but it's just something that I didn't necessarily think of. Yeah. It's so important to taste as you go yeah. and see what you need more yeah. of. Yeah. And, and you know, now I, I'm getting myself into the habit of doing that. Mm. I can't believe I ever cooked without doing that. Mm -hmm. But it's almost when you see a recipe, you think, okay, I can trust in that. But mm. you forget that it's very, cooking is very personal, isn't yeah, it? It's yeah. your preference. So I think, um, you know, Nadia, I have to, I do have to take that on board from you. I do have to taste as I go to. <laughs> I think the only reason I'm saying that personally is because I don't taste as I go. I'm a very instinctive cook. I, I look at a recipe or I look at a dish being cooked and I'm like, okay, that seems about right. It's at the end when the, you know, the chicken curry or the lamb curry or the mushroom curry with carrots and peas is actually... So if I'm making a sambar or whatever and it's simmering, then that's when I'll taste it. Mm. Um, but then, you know, I should really taste as I go. But I think I've just been such an intuitive and instinctive cook that I think... Um, I, I, I don't think tasting as I go has actually been part of my philosophy, which I think I should take on board. I think it has to be a balance. I think it's got to be about tasting as you go. But also, I think you should... Learn to trust your own intuition. Learn, Definitely. Learn to be slightly more instinctive and go, okay, I need a bit more salt. I need a mm. tiny bit more chili. For instance, a keema pao. For a dish like this, if you haven't added the right amount of chili and you want it a little bit more spicy, the best thing to do is once you've cooked the keema, leave it on the side. Take a small frying pan, okay, add a tiny bit of ghee or oil to the frying pan and then add a pinch, maybe about quarter teaspoon of Kashmiri chili powder. Take it off the heat and let it sizzle quite nicely and pour that over your keema. And that in itself will give you that vibrant color. It'll give you that little bit of heat. That um, technique of actually adding um, red chili powder or Kashmiri chili powder to the oil, uh, of course, it's like a tarka, but it's it's what it's what they actually use for most dishes. They would use that for dal. They would use that for you know any kind of veggie curry. So it's it's that last bit of you know finishing touch that people tend to give, uh, which is really really delicious. Well, you've made me very very hungry, but <laughs> that's all we have time for today. So thank you so much. I've learned so much, and Absolute I can't pleasure. wait to to give it a go myself well, and I'll I take all your tips on board. Thank you, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure I will. 
Um, so that's the last episode in the series. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Do get in touch and tell us what you thought. And a Christmas special of the BBC Good Food podcast will be available soon. So look out for that. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Nadia. Thank you. And that was the Rookie Chef podcast with me, Nadia Zirfat. To get the recipe and find out more, go to bbcgoodfood.com forward slash podcast and make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts to never miss an episode. 